Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for subscribers and Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are going over the life of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, also known as the Sira. And this is Sira episode number forty-four. So before we begin, let's do a quick recap of of the last episode. We discussed a delegation of Banu Hanifa, which included Musaylama al-Kadhab, that met with the Prophet in Medina. We also briefly mentioned the farewell pilgrimage, but we did not go into detail because we did discuss that in the regular season episode, season two, episode one. We also discussed the rise of three false prophets from within the Muslim domain. These included Al-Aswad Al-Ansi, Musaylam Al-Kadhab from Banu Hanifa, and Tuleha, Tuleha Al-Asadi. We also discussed the army of Usama ibn Zayd, which the Prophet wanted to send north to battle with the Byzantines. And we briefly mentioned the onset of the Prophet's final sickness. And so in this episode, we are going to primarily discuss the Prophet Wasallam's death. So, as we mentioned in the last episode and in our brief recap, there were several minor emerging problems. I'm going to say minor because they were actually kind of big. There were several emerging problems in the Muslim domain. There were the Byzantines making noise up to the north, and then these three false prophets making noise throughout Arabia. And so the prophet, his mission was coming to an, an end. His life was coming to an end because his his mission was coming to, to an end. And he had, had mentioned as much during his speech in the farewell khutbah, which he made during the farewell hajj or the farewell pilgrimage. The uh, farewell sermon of the farewell khutbah, we discussed that in season two, episode one. So if you want to hear the actual words of one version of the farewell khutbah, there are several versions, you can go there and definitely listen to it. And a little bit after the Prophet returned from the farewell pilgrimage, he fell ill in the month of Safar, which is the second month of the Islamic calendar, in the month of Safar, 11 AH. During, just before he fell sick, he had his freed slave, who was most likely his servant, a man named Abu Muwayhiba, he had his freed slave help him go to a cemetery in Medina. This is a famous cemetery just outside the Prophet's mosque called Al-Baqi. It is still there, easy to see if you ever visit Medina. No, they do kind of limit access to get into it. That's the, the Saudi regime thing, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, he went to this uh, famous cemetery called Al-Baqi, and the Prophet prayed for the dead Muslims that were there. After he finished praying for the people at Al-Baqi, at the cemetery, he returned to Aisha's home where he complained of a bad headache, and this began the onset of his actual sickness. So, a little bit after he got sick, he uh, went to visit all of his wives in turn. Uh, This was kind of like the, the, um, the practice of the Prophet. I don't know if we mentioned it before, but... 
I don't want to get into detail about his wife's visitation rights and all that kind of stuff, but he did use to visit his wives in turn, try to spend some time with them every single day as much as he could. But as he was making the rounds going to their houses, the sickness got too much for him and he had gotten up to Maimuna's house. And when he finally got to Maimuna's house, the sickness was too much for him to carry on he had multiple wives and we'll go over the uh, number of his wives and and their lives and everything in the next episode most likely but when he got to maimuna's house he really just couldn't take it anymore it was too much for him physically and he asked and received permission from his other wives to remain at aisha's house while he was sick and be nursed there and they agreed Two men from his household helped him back to Aisha's house. These were Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, not to be confused with the famous companion and scholar Ibn Abbas, whose first name is actually Abdullah ibn Abbas, but instead it was Abdullah's brother, Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, and the Prophet's other cousin, Ali ibn Abi Talib. They helped the Prophet return back to Aisha's house. When he returned to Aisha's house, the headache developed into a deep fever. And while he was there, he asked for he asked to be bathed in cold water, which helped to bring the fever down some. We're going to we're going to go through a lot of the reports of the prophet's um, final sickness and a lot of the things that were said during this final sickness. And there are lots of reports. We're going to cover a few of them that I believe are the most trustworthy and have the most credit most credibility but there are lots of them out there and i didn't want to cover all of them not to mention the fact that many of them just aren't all that credible but these are some that in my opinion and in the opinion of pe- people who taught me i believe these are probably the most reliable and allah knows best so the first one comes from his same cousin al-fadl ibn abbas who reported that the prophet called him for help to help him go somewhere and when al-fadl ibn abbas walked in on the prophet the prophet's head was wrapped up in a sort of cloth or towel al-fadl he helped the prophet walk to the membar or the pulpit of the masjid and then the prophet instructed al-fadl to call the people to gather when the people had gathered the prophet then began to exhort them and to encourage them and advise them to take vengeance on him or take recompense on him for any harm that me that he may had done to them. So he led the people after he asked, he basically encouraged them to let him know if he had wronged them in any way. He led the people in prayer, which at this time was Salatul Dhuhr, which is which is the early afternoon prayer. And then after the prayer was over, he repeated the same thing that he had said before, if he had done any wrong on them, this was their chance to let him know so that he could pay them back or that they could receive recompense. One man stood up and said the prophet owed him three dirhams and the prophet instructed Al-Fadl ibn Abbas to pay the man his three dirhams. Another man stood up and said that he had unjustly taken three dirhams from money that was meant for the cause of Allah. So this is probably the overall Muslim treasury. The prophet simply uh, forgave him, told him to pay it back and forgave him for it and left it at that, which if this report is true, kinds of calls kind of calls into question the whole chopping off the hand thing. I don't know. Uh, I don't. 
this is something just for you to think about. Just play it in your mind. And once again, I don't know how reliable this one is, but it was among the reports that I thought were pretty good. And Allah, once again, knows best. Anyway, the Prophet continued to talk to the people, and many of them stood up and and mentioned their different vices and, and bad habits. And each and every time the Prophet prayed for these things to be removed or taken away from them. That is, he prayed for these people to have their bad habits taken away from them. On a different occasion, the Prophet hinted at his impending death. This is a different narration. Once again, the people were gathered at the masjid, and as when the people were gathered at the masjid, the Prophet began to encourage them to be good to the Ansars. Those are the people of Medina who invited the Prophet to stay with them in Medina. The Prophet went on to say that the immigrants of his community will grow, but the Ansars will not grow beyond what they were on that day. The Prophet also said that he had been given the choice between the good of this world or the next life, and that he had chosen the next life. And when he said this, many other people, including Abu Bakr, they knew what the prophet meant. They knew that he he expected to die soon, and some of them started crying. The prophet then commanded that all of the doors to the masjid be closed, except for the one leading to Abu Bakr's house. And it was at this time that he said, the most gracious person to me with his comradeship or his friendship and his wealth is Abu Bakr. And the prophet went on to say that, if I were to take a friend, I will take Abu Bakr, but instead we are Muslim brothers. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud reports another incident during these last few days of the Prophet's life. The Prophet had called his companions into Aisha's house, and he was nearing the end of his life. This uh, group included most of the high companions. When they had gathered, the Prophet prayed for them, and he advised them to trust in Allah, and then he recited several verses from the Qur'an. One of the companions asked the Prophet, when did he expect his death to come? The Prophet replied that the departure from this life and the return to Allah and the low tree are drawing, are drawing closer, meaning that it was coming soon, but he did not know the exact time. They then asked the Prophet, what did he want them to do with his body after he died? And how did, they want them, how did he want them to wrap it? And he replied that the washing should be done by his closest relatives. And then he also asked to be wrapped in either the clothes that he was wearing or in white Egyptian cloth. Then the companions went on to ask who should lead his janazah prayer, his funeral prayer. And at that, the prophet said, go slowly. So I will interpret that in modern English as slow down. Just hold up a minute. The prophet went on to say what translates as, may Allah forgive you and reward you with goodness on behalf of your prophet. And then he went on to give them some basic instructions on his burial. He instructed that after he was washed and shrouded, he should be left on his bed near the edge of his grave for a while. And that this is basically the prophet had before this mentioned that he should be buried as all prophets. He should be buried exactly where he died. And he expected in this situation to die in Aisha's house. So he asked for 
the companions and after he was washed and shrouded to leave him on his bed near the edge of his grave for a while. And during this time, he would be visited by various angels, which he which the angels would see the Muslims, but the Muslims would not see the angels. After that period had passed, the prophet went on to advise the Muslims that after that, the Muslims should enter group by group and pray for him and ask and offer their final respects. He instructed that first the men from his family should come and then the women from his family should come and then the rest of the community can come in groups. And then he warned them not to beat their chests or, or mourn and cry, and cry loudly, which was the practices of the uh, people uh, before Islam, the days of ignorance. And when they asked him who should allow, who should I lower him into his grave, he commanded that the people of his family should be the ones to lower him into his grave. So we have another report from Ibn Abbas, and this would be Abdullah Ibn Abbas. Ibn Abbas reported that Ali Ibn Abi Talib visited the Prophet on the morning in which he died. After Ali ibn Abi Talib left the Prophet's home, the people asked him how the Prophet was doing and what kind of condition he was in, and Ali replied that he seemed to be doing better. At that time, Abbas, who was Ibn Abbas's father, who was the Prophet's uncle, he encouraged Ali to ask the Prophet, go back and ask the Prophet, who will have the leadership after him, basically, who should succeed him. Abbas said that Abbas kind of knew that knew that the prophet's time was coming, his death was coming, and Abbas said that he could recognize death on the sons of Abdul Muttalib. And Abbas, being one of the sons of Abdul Muttalib, which was who was the prophet's grandfather, Abbas was the the prophet's uncle first of all, because also. Um, the brother of the Prophet's father, as was Abu Talib, as was um, Abu Lahab, as was, I may be missing some, I'm sure I'm missing some, but the, as was, um, I know I'm missing one, Hamza, of course, how could I forget Hamza? So, there are others there, but still, these are the names we're most familiar with. So, Abbas was one of the Prophet's uncle, and Abbas wanted to know who the community's leadership should pass to. Um, Abbas wasn't necessarily saying that it should stay within Banu Hashim, but he wanted to know if the Prophet wanted it to stay with Banu Hashim. And in this report, Abbas said that if the Prophet wanted it to stay with Banu Hashim, then he wanted to have this known to the people so there wouldn't be any problems after the Prophet's death. And if the Prophet wanted to go to someone else, then Banu Hashim would know and they would follow them willingly. However, Ali refused to go back in there and ask the prophet this question, saying that if he did that, if he did go in there and ask the prophet who will be the leader, who will the leadership go to, and the prophet did not give it to someone from Banu Hashim, then Banu Hashim would never get it after that. That's what Ali seemed to be concerned with. And in the commentary to this narration, the um, whoever narrated it seemed to believe that Ali thought the caliphate or the succession should be rightfully his. And Atabari, which is where I'm getting most, most of my information from, Atabari states that Ali did not think that this right, the right of succession to the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, would be taken to would be taken away from him. So Ali seemed to think 
that he had the right to succeed the prophet as one of the prophet's closest companions and as a member of the prophet's family. He seemed to think that it was rightfully for him and he did not expect for the people to take it away from him. And this may explain some of the tension between Ali and Fatima and Abu Bakr early in the early part of Abu Bakr's caliphate. And we discuss this in more detail after Abu Bakr becomes the caliph in season two of the Islamic History Podcast. We discuss lots of the con much of the conflict between Ali and Abu Bakr, how it was resolved, and then how that same conflict went on to pass into the, the war or the battle between Ali and Aisha Radiallahu Anhum. So that's already discussed, but the point is that if this commentary is true, it seemed to think that Ali kind of had an expectation that the caliphate would go to him. However, just because Ali expected it to go to him doesn't mean that Ali was right that it should go to him. It's just Ali's expectation. Moving on, there was another narration that where the companions forced the prophet to take some medicine. And there's a couple of narrations on this one, so I just kind of condensed them into one um, one piece. Several of the companions and member, members of the prophet's household had gathered in Aisha's house, and some of them believed the prophet was suffering from a disease called pleurisy. Pleurisy is an, an inflammation of the thin membrane that lies between the chest and the lungs. When well, this membrane, it keeps the lungs from rubbing against the chest cavity when a person breathes. So when this becomes inflamed, it can be very painful to breathe in and out. And this leads to short, shallow breaths. And it, this uh, membrane, uh, it can become inflamed by bacteria infection, fungal infection, or even viral infection. So there are many ways for it to happen. If it gets infected by any of these things, it's infected. And this sickness can also lead to fever. And so based upon the prophet's breathing, based upon his fever, many, some of the companions, say many of them, some of the companions thought that the prophet was suffering from, from pleurisy. And so the companions, they elected or chose among themselves, made the, the decision to force the prophet to take some medicine for pleurisy. They had, it seems as if they had some medicine that came from Abyssinia. The prophet didn't want to take it, but they decided to give it to him anyway. And so they forced him to take the medicine, and it seemed to help a bit. Uh, and when the prophet recovered a little bit, he was very upset with them for forcing him to take this medicine because he said that he did not have pleurisy and that Allah would not make him suffer from such a disease. And in another narration, the prophet then made those who forced him to take the medicine, take the medicine themselves. I'm not sure how, how reliable that one is. It sounds kind of, uh, I don't know, sounds kind of vindictive on the prophet's part, but Allah knows best. During this period of time that the prophet was going through his illness, Abu Bakr led the prayers most of the time. And we have already discussed in season two, episode one, about the prophet's decision to have Abu Bakr lead the prayer and how Aisha tried to um, 
finagle it to allow Omar to lead the prayer. And the prophet got upset, which made his other wife Hafsa get upset at Aisha. We discussed all that. So I won't go into detail about the prophet's request to have Abu Bakr lead the prayer. Just be known that during the last few days of the prophet's life, Abu Bakr led the prayer most of the time. There are some reports that state that Abu Bakr led the prayer for three days, which would be 15 prayers total. Other reports say that he led 17 prayers in total, which is a little bit more than three days. So it's three days and two prayers. So I think it's safe to say Abu Bakr led the prayer for roughly three days. However, on one day, the prophet seemed to have enough strength to actually lead the prayer. And this would be the last time that he did lead the prayer. This is once again something we discussed in season two, episode one, but we'll go over it a little bit anyway. While Abu Bakr was leading the prayer, the Prophet, وسلم, he came out while Abu Bakr was leading, and Abu Bakr tried to step aside, but the Prophet made him stay put, and instead he just sat down next to Abu Bakr and he began to recite where Abu Bakr had left off, recite from the Quran and leading the prayer from where Abu Bakr had left off. And after the prayer was finished, the people left the masjid feeling happy to see the prophet leading them again. So once again, he hadn't, he hadn't led them in several days or so. He was looking much better. And even though he had to sit down uh, while, he, while he led them in prayer, the people were feeling lighter and happier that the prophet had led them in prayer. After the prayer was over, the prophet returned to Aisha's house and he laid down on Aisha's lap to rest. While he was laying down on Aisha's lap, a man who was probably Aisha's brother, Abdurrahman ibn Abu Bakr, he came into Aisha's room and he was holding a miswak. The Prophet looked at the miswak and um, the way he was looking at it indicated to Aisha that he really wanted it. And so he had, she had her brother give it to her. And so she chewed on the miswak until it became really soft and then she gave it to the Prophet. The prophet then took the miswak and then began to brush his teeth with it very, very vigorously, much more uh, vigorously than normal. And then when he had finished, he put the miswak down and closed his eyes. And as his eyes closed, Aisha could feel the prophet's body growing heavy, heavier as he lay in her lap. And the prophet opened his eyes one last time. And according to Aisha, his eyes were fixed on something above him, something above above him as if he was looking past her up into the ceiling. Then he said, nay, the most exalted companion is that of paradise. And this goes back to what we mentioned earlier about how the prophet was offered two decisions, either to stay in this world or to go to the next world. And when he made this comment, Nay, the most exalted companion is that of paradise. Aisha knew that the prophet had been given a choice between this life and the next, and that he had made his decision for the next life. After that, he closed his eyes, and he passed from this world, and he returned to Allah. At the time of his death, the only thing that the prophet owned was his armor and a mule. There are a few disagreements about the time of the Prophet's death. As we mentioned in episode 2-1, 
season two, episode one. Most common opinion is the 12th of Rabi'l Awal, 11 AH. Others say that everyone agrees that it was on a Monday. Everyone pretty much agrees it was during Rabi'l Awal. Everyone agrees it was 11 AH. Not everyone agrees on which Monday it was. But the way I learned it, and I'll pass it on to you, um, it seemed to have been the 12th of Rabi'l Awal. And Rabi'l Awal is the third month of the Islamic calendar. Now, I did uh, actually mention, or I, I did mention the last episode that I was going to discuss the Prophet's household, and that this would be the last episode, but... In doing my research in this one and the regular podcast, I just didn't have time to go over the Prophet's household. So, in fact, there will be one more episode of the Sira podcast. And inshallah, in the next episode, we will go over the members of the Prophet's household. I'm pretty sure I discussed pretty much all of the members of his household at some point in time during this very, very long series on the Sira. However... However, I think a good recap and a summarization would be good, or summary would be good. So inshallah, there will be one more episode, um, which will be Sira episode number 45. Then I'm going to need a few weeks to prepare for the next series in Islamic History Exclusive. And I did mention I was going to tell you what it was in this episode, and I meant to leave it for, I'll tell you, okay? Inshallah, we're going to continue the story of Ibn Zubair and his war against the Umayyads. If you remember from season three, I believe we left off with the uh, Battle of Karbala, where Ali, I'm sorry, not Ali, where Hussein Ibn Ali was killed. And then we discussed how the, um, also the death of, nope, not, not, not that. We discussed, I believe, the, uh, the conflict that was brewing in Medina with many of the companions and the companions' children kind of rising up against the Umayyad Caliphate. We discussed that and how the Umayyads were suddenly in danger. I believe that was the last episode from season three. So we're going to pick up from there and discuss Ibn Zubair's fight against the Umayyads. And this is this is going to take a lot. I've already done some of the research, but there's lots of tribes involved. And so it's going to be quite a bit for me to gather all this information, try to put it together for you as best as I can. Unfortunately, it will not be as easy to roll this out week by week as I can for the CETA. With the CETA, um, it's a little bit easier. I have, I've taken several CETA classes. I have lots of books on the CETA. I have lots of notes for my classes on the CETA. Um, there's ample information online. Before these early wars um, between the the um, the Umayyads and and uh, Ibn Zubair, it's not so easy. So I don't know if I will be able to have them for you as quickly on a weekly basis. I have as I have uh, the Cedar podcast going, but I will try my best to get them to you as quickly as possible. But I will need a few weeks at least to get my notes in order and to get my thoughts together on where I am right now. So until then, till next week, inshallah, where we discuss the Prophet's family and his household. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.